two. Life in the Quarter. Our bistro, for instance, at the foot of the Hotel de Trois-Monnier, a tiny brick-floored room half underground with wine-sodden tables and a photograph of a funeral inscribed Credit est mort, and Fred, red-sashed workman carving sausage with big jackknives, and Madame F., a splendid Auvergneur peasant woman with the face of a strong-minded cow drinking Malaga all day for her stomach, and games of dice for aperitif, and songs about Le Fraise, Le Framboise, and about Madeleine who said, Comment t'espousser un soldat, moi qui ami tout le régiment, and extraordinarily public love-making. Half the hotel used to meet in the bistro in the evenings, and I wish one could find a pub in London, a quarter as cheery. One heard queer conversations in the bistro. As a sample, I give you Charlie, one of the local curiosities, talking. Charlie was a youth of family and education who had run away from home and lived on occasional remittances. Now picture him, very pink and young, with the fresh cheeks and soft brown hair of a nice little boy, and lips excessively red and wet like cherries. His feet are tiny, his arms abnormally short, his hands dimpled like a baby's. He's a way of dancing and capering while he talks, as though he were too happy and too full of life to keep still for an instant. It's three in the afternoon, and there's no one in the bistro except Madame F., and one of the two men who are out of work. But it's all the same to Charlie, whom he talks to, as long as he can talk about himself. He declaims like an orator on a barricade, rolling the words on his tongue and gesticulating with his short arms. His small, rather piggy eyes glitter with enthusiasm. He is somehow profoundly disgusting to see. He's talking of love, his favourite subject. Ah, l'amour, l'amour, ah, qui la femme, mon tour. Alas, mesdames and messieurs, women have been my ruin, beyond all hope, my ruin. At twenty-two I am utterly worn out and finished. But what things I have learnt, what abysses of wisdom have I not plumbed. How great a thing it is to have acquired the true wisdom, to have become, in the highest sense of the word, a civilized man, to have become Rathine, Vivio, etc., etc., etc. Messieurs and Madame, I perceive that you are sad. Ah, mais la vie est belle. You must not be sad, be more gay, I beseech you. Feel high the bowl of this Sumerian vine. We will not sink of the seams of these. Ah, qui la vie est belle. Listen, messieurs et dames, out of the fullness of my experience, I will discourse to you of love. I will explain to you what is the true meaning of love, what is the true sensibility, the higher, the more refined pleasure which is known to civilized men alone. I will tell you of the happiest 
day of my life. Alas, but I am past the time when I could know such happiness as that. It is gone forever. The very possibility, even the desire for it, are gone. So listen then. It was twenty-two years ago. My brother was in Paris. He is a lawyer. And my parents had told him to find me and take me out to dinner. We hated each other, my brother and I, but he preferred not to disobey my parents. And we dined. At a dinner, he drew very drunk upon three bottles of Bordeaux. I took him back to his hotel, and on the way I bought a bottle of brandy. And when we had arrived, I made my brother drink a tumbler of it. I told him it was something to make him sober, and he drank it, and immediately he fell down like somebody in a fit, dead drunk. I lifted him up, I propped his back against the bed, and then I went through his pockets. I found eleven hundred francs, and with that I hurried down the stairs, I jumped into a taxi and escaped. My brother did not know my address, and I was safe. What does a man do, and where does a man go when he has money? To the bordels, naturally. But you do not suppose that I was going to waste my time on some vulgar debauchery fit only for navvies? Confound it! One is a civilized man. I was fastidious, exigent, you understand, with a thousand francs in my pocket. It was midnight before I found what I was looking for. I had fallen in with a very smart youth of eighteen, dressed en smoking and with his hair cut à l'Americaine, and we were talking in a quiet bistro away from the boulevard. We understood one another well, that youth and I. We talked of this and of that. We discussed ways of diverting oneself, and presently we took a taxi together and were driven away. The taxi stopped in a narrow, solitary street, with a single gas lamp flaring at the end. There were dark puddles among the stones, and down one side ran the high blank wall of a convent. My guide led me a tall, ruinous house with shuttered windows, and knocked several times at the door. Presently, there was the sound of footsteps and a shooting of bolts, and the little door opened, just a fraction. A hand came round the edge of it. It was a large, crooked hand that held itself palm upwards under our noses, demanding money. My guide put his foot between the door and the step. "'How much do you want?' he said. "'A thousand francs,' said the woman. "'Pay up at once, or you don't come in.' I put a thousand francs into the hand and I gave the remaining hundred to my guide, and he said, Good night, and left me. I could hear the voice inside counting the notes. And then that thin old crow of a woman in a black dress put her nose out and regarded me suspiciously before letting me in. It was very dark inside. I could see nothing except a flaring gas jet which illuminated a patch of plaster wool, throwing everything else into deep shadow. There was a smell of rats and dust, and without speaking the old woman lighted a candle at the gas jet, and then hobbled in front of me down a stone passage to the top of a flight of stone steps. 
Voila, she said. Go down into the cellar there and do what you like. I shall see nothing. I shall hear nothing. I shall know nothing. You are free, you understand, perfectly free. Ah, messieurs, need I describe to you forcément, for you know it yourselves, that shiver, that half terror, the half of joy that goes through one at these moments. I crept down, feeling my way. I could hear my breathing and the scraping of my feet on the stones. Otherwise, all was silence. At the bottom of the stairs, my hand met an electric switch. I turned it on, and great electoral of twelve red globes flooded the cellar with a red light. And behold, I was not in the cellar, but in a bedroom, a great, rich, garish bedroom, coloured blood red from top to bottom. Figure it to yourselves, messieurs and madames. Red carpet on the floor, and red paper on the walls. Red plush on the chairs, even the ceiling red, everywhere red, burning into the eyes. It was a heavy, stifling red, as though the light was shining through bowls of blood. At the far end stood a huge square bed, with quilts red like the rest, and on it a girl was lying, dressed in a frock of red velvet. At the sight of me she shrank away and tried to hide her knees under her short dress. I halted by the door. "'Come here, my chicken,' I called her. She gave a whimper of fright. With a bound, I was beside the bed. She tried to elude me, but I seized her by the throat. "'Like this, you see, tight!' She struggled. She began to cry out for mercy, but I held her fast, forcing back her head and staring down into her face. She was twenty years old, perhaps. Her face was the broad, dull face of a stupid child. But it was coated with paint and powder, and her blue, stupid eyes, shining in the red light, wore that shocked, distorted look the one sees nowhere save except in the eyes of these women. She was some peasant girl, doubtless, whom her parents had sold into slavery. Without another word I pulled off her, her off the bed and threw her onto the floor. I fell upon her like a tiger. Ah, the joy, the incomparable rapture of that time. There, messieurs et dames, here is what I would expound to you. Voilà l'amour. There is the true love. There is the only thing in the world worth striving for. There is the thing besides which... All of your arts and ideals, all of your philosophies and your creeds, all of your fine words and high attitudes are as pale and profitless as ashes. When one has experienced love, the true love, what is there in the world that seems more than a mere ghost of joy? More and more savagely I renewed the attack. Again and again the girl tried to escape. She cried out for mercy, but I laughed at her. Mercy, I said. Do you suppose I have come here to show mercy? Do you suppose I have paid a thousand francs for that? I swear to you, madames and monsieur, that if I was not for that accursed law that robs us of our liberty, I would have murdered her at that moment. Ah! How she screamed! 
with what bitter cries of agony. But there was no one to hear them down there under that street of Paris. We were as secure as in the heart of a pyramid. Tears streamed down the girl's face, washing away the powder in long, dirty smears. Ah, that irrecoverable time. You, messieurs et dames, you who have not cultivated the finer sensibilities of love, for you have such pleasure, is almost beyond conception. And I, too, now that my youth is gone, ah, youth, I shall never see again life so beautiful as that. It is finished. Ah, yes, it is gone and gone forever. The poverty, the shortness, the disappointment of human joy. For in reality, car en réalité, what is the duration of the supreme moment of love? It is nothing. It is an instant, a second, perhaps, a second of ecstasy, and after that, dust and ashes and nothingness. And so, just for one instant, I captured the supreme happiness, the highest and the most refined emotion to which human beings can attain, and at the same moment it was finished, and I was left to what? All my savagery and my passion were scattered like the petals of a rose. I was left cold and languid, full of vain regrets. In my revulsion I even felt a kind of pity for the weeping girl on the floor. Is it not nauseous that we should be the prey of such mean emotions? I did not look at the girl again. My sole thought was to get away. I hastened up the steps of the vault and out into the street. It was dark, bitterly cold. The streets were empty. The stones echoed under my heels with a hollow, lonely ring. All my money was gone. I had not even the price of a taxi fare. I walked back alone to my cold, solitary room. But there, messieurs et dames, that is what I promised to expound to you. That is love. That was the happiest day of my life. He was a curious specimen, Charlie. I describe him just to show what a diverse set of characters can be found flourishing in the Cochlear Door Quarter.